This episode is dedicated to Noel Neal, who died on Sunday, July 3rd at the age of 95 years old. Noel Neal was the first woman to realize the role of Lois Lane on the screen, betraying the character in the first two Superman serials, starring Kirk Allen. She would then further define the role in seasons 2 through 6 of The Adventures of Superman, when she took over the role of Lois Lane after Phyllis Coates was unable to come back for, for the second season. I think for me, her best episode, and, and an episode where Noel Neal really shined, bringing a softer side to Lois Lane was in the episode The Wedding of Superman, where she was helping out with the Lonely Hearts column and with the letters all in her bed asking for relationship advice, she fell asleep while working and had a dream of what would happen if Superman were to propose to her. It was just a very sweet episode detailing Lois's feelings for the Man of Steel and how she would feel if he reciprocated those feelings. She did a great job in that episode, and she did a great job in every episode. Over the years, she really became a true ambassador for the, not only Lois Lane, but for the Superman brand as a whole. And she never seemed to shy away from her legacy as Lois Lane, as she would appear in the 1978 Superman film starring Christopher Reeve on a train as Lois Lane's mother, along with her original Superman co-star, Kirk Allen. She also appeared with Jack Larson, whom she developed a close friendship with over the years, in an episode of The Adventures of Superboy. Her last appearance in a Superman product on screen was in 2006 when she played Gertrude in Superman Returns, which starred Brandon Routh. Ironically enough, her last appearance on the screen in a Superman production had her character dying on the screen and bequeathing her estate to Lex Luthor. Like I said, this is of Noel Neal. You've heard Bob Fisher tell the story on this podcast of how he met Noel Neal in 1972 and I've never met her, but from what I've heard, she's always presented herself with class and dignity. This is one of the big losses in the Superman community. She was even formally recognized as the First Lady of Metropolis in Metropolis, Illinois, and the city has recently honored her by erecting a statue of her as Lois Lane in the city. To the friends and family of Noel Neal, I send my deepest condolences, and may she rest in peace and always look down upon us with the two supermen in her life, Kirk Allen and George Reeves. Thank you. The Man of Scream. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 19 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and on this episode, I'm going to continue my look at the Adventures of Superman television series with the next two episodes of season one, The Monkey Mystery, and a very popular Phyllis Coates-driven episode, A Night of Terror. But before I get to that, this is the first episode to be released since the digital versions of the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice has been released to the public. 
as of this recording, I have not seen the Ultimate Cut yet, as I am making this recording on June 15th. And as of this recording, I'm not sure when I'm going to get to see the Ultimate Cut. I might have seen it already by the time this episode drops, or I might have to wait until the Blu-ray is released on July 19th. But either way, I will be doing an episode of Man of Screen Extra at the end of this month, July 29th, when I will discuss the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I don't know yet whether I will be discussing it on my own or with some guests. Hopefully some guests, but we'll have to see how that goes. But as an added feature, I thought some of you might have some thoughts that you'd like to share on the movie, either on the theatrical or the ultimate cut. The show was very new when the movie was released in theaters, so I hadn't had a chance to engage with some of you on the film. So if you'd like to send me some of your thoughts on The Ultimate Cut, I'll be happy to read them on mic, and you can send that stuff to me at manofscreen at gmail.com. So, that being said, I am going to move right into this episode, and I'll be back with Bob Fisher, and we're going to discuss the monkey mystery. Hang around, folks. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, Welcome back, folks, and like I mentioned, I have Bob Fisher back with me this week. Hello. Thanks for bringing me back. Oh, always. We've got two more two more good episodes. Yeah, really good episodes, high on my favorite list as well. Yeah. At first, I didn't remember the monkey mystery very fondly, but it's got a monkey in it. It's got a monkey in it. <laughs> when I get frustrated with people about Batman v Superman, I tell them, it had parademons. It had parademons. There it is, man. Yeah. Yeah, this has got a monkey in it that wears a Superman costume. It does, and you can't go wrong with that. No, come on. Unless the monkey's right. name is Beppo. <laughs> hey, don't be dissing Beppo, man. <laughs> All right, so the monkey mystery. More Silver Age goodness. Original broadcast date for this was October 17th, 1952. Let's find out what days of the week these were. Uh, Monday or Tuesday. Okay. Depending on the area. I think in LA, it, it debuted first on Monday nights and then uh, in certain markets, Monday, because it was syndicated, even though it was a network show. It was, I don't think they call it syndicated. I forgot right. what it's called. There's a term for it. And it was, some markets was Monday and some markets it came on on Tuesday evening, prime time. It was not a kid's Saturday morning show. Right. Prime time drama. This episode was written by Ben Peter Freeman and Doris Gilbert. Bob, do you want to take a guess at the director? Oh, let's guess Tommy Carr. 
You would be correct, sir. <laughs> and you have won absolutely nothing. Right. Our guest cast is Aline Roberts as Maria Maleska. This will be, I believe, Roberts' second appearance on the show. She was Alice, the housemaid in The Haunted Lighthouse. Very good. The, I, deaf, and, the deaf mute. The deaf mute, yeah. Michael Vallon is Tony Ermenti. That is the organ grinder who owns the monkey. Harry Lewis as Harold Crane. William Chally as Max. Stephen Carr is back as the doctor. And he's also the voice of the sergeant. You know, this was the episode when I, when I realized where I knew Stephen Carr from. Yeah? He is Mr. Morgan in Superman the Serial, who Professor Leeds' is assistant, who gives the spider lady the information on kryptonite. Oh, cool. See, I did not know that. Yeah, I, He's also, I think, in the very in the opening of this, the voice that says, look up in the sky. Oh, is I he? think that's also Steve Carr. I finally recognized his voice uh, in this episode. I finally realized who he was. I think in The Haunted Lighthouse, he might have been the Coast Guard lieutenant. Hmm. Okay. Fred Esler is scientist Jan Maleska, and Ned Roberts is Frisch. Both of our synopses on this episode are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Central Europe, 1951. Scientist Jan Maleska has been declared an enemy of the state. He and his daughter Maria are in a cave hiding from the secret police. Dr. Maleska is weakened from running. He gives Maria a locket that had belonged to her mother. Inside is the greatest secret that can help mankind. Listen to me, Maria. I can run from them no longer. I'm too old, too weak. But you are young. You may be able to escape. Mother's locket. Take this. Take it to America. To the President of the United States. Give it to him alone. To no other. I will not leave you. You must, Maria. Say to the President to open the locket. That which is inside will mean new hope for humanity. Yes, but... Listen to me, my child. The fruit of my life's work is in your hands. It must be used for the good of mankind. If those godless devils secure it, it will mean the end of freedom on Earth. Take this and go to America. Do exactly as I said, and trust no one but the President. Go. There's no more time. Maria's father has been killed by the secret police, and Maria has boarded an airplane to the U.S. in Lisbon. Enemy agents are ordered to contact Harold Crane, a man in Metropolis who works for them. Crane will be paid $200,000 to secure Maleska's formula. Daily Planet reporters Clark Kent and Lois Lane are on the streets of Metropolis enjoying the sight of some children being entertained by an organ grinder, Tony Ermenti, and his monkey, Pepe. Pepe is dressed in a Superman costume as he performs for boys and girls. When the act concludes, Peppy gives each youngster a piece of paper with a fortune written on it. Lois receives one. <laughs> He's a cute monkey. <laughs> He's a smart too. Can he tell my fortune? Oh, sure, lady, sure. Peppy, you give this nice pretty lady her fortune, huh? Come on. <laughs> Thank you, Peppy. There you are, little fella. Thank you, lady. Thank you, mister. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> What's it say? Don't rush me. 
No fair, Clark. Even a reporter's entitled to a little private life. Uh-huh. Must be good. Of course, Lois is an unfortunate. It says, plane landed in Philadelphia because of fog in Metropolis. Jan Maleska's daughter taking the Washington Limited at noon today. New schedule being followed. Not what I expect to find in my fortune cookie. Lois is now intrigued by what she has read. She has just left Clark to cover the Peterson trial while she takes a taxi. As the car drives away, Tony and Peppy try to chase her. The organ grinder calls to Lois, but his warnings of trouble go unheard. Lois is in her office at the Planet, preparing for a trip. She'll take an airplane to Baltimore and board the Washington Limited when the train stops there. She intends to get an exclusive interview with Maria Maleska. Knowing that Perry White will want to know more about her voyage, Jimmy Olsen asks where she got the tip for her story. Lois tells him, from a monkey, leaving Jimmy confused. Tony and Peppy are w- walking into an alley, and the monkey is climbing a pipe to enter the window of Harold Crane's apartment. He gives Crane a message that tells him of the paper that was given to Lois and its contents. Knowing Tony remembered the note, Crane believes the organ grinder is a risk to their plans for a Dr. Maleska's formula. That stupid organ grinder lost a message for me about Maleska's daughter. Oh, that dumb jerk. Yeah, fortunately, he read it and remembered enough to pass it on. Say... A guy like that could be dangerous. That's what I was thinking. I could be traced through that organ grinder. He's waiting in the alley downstairs. Get rid of him. Okay, boss. Perry is beside himself about Lois leaving without consulting him, and throughout the course of this show, Perry spends a lot of time beside himself. Well, go on. What did she tell you? Well, uh, she said she had a tip. She said it was pretty wild, but she wild, said... Wild, eh? But she goes off to Baltimore just the same. On the paper's money. Doesn't even bother to consult me. Great Caesar's Now, wait a minute, Chief. Lois is pretty solid. She may be a little impulsive at times. Impulsive, eh? Well, she's been impulsive around here for the last time. And that goes for you, too, Kent. From here on in, nobody goes out on a story until they check with me. You paste that in your hat, too. Yes, sir. But I think I know why Miss Lane went. I mean, I think I know where she got her tip. I I found this on her desk. You can see that, Jim. Lois got this from the monkey. Plane landed Philadelphia because of fog in Metropolis. Jan Maleska's daughter taking Washington Limited noon today, 24th. New schedule being followed. What is that? Where did it come from? I told you, she got it from the monkey. Are you crazy? Golly, she said something about a monkey. I better get out there. Where? The Washington Limited. If this is on the level, it's a whale of a story. I'll see you later, Chief. Kent, come back here! Kent! Kent, that train's halfway to Washington by now. Come back here. How are you going to... Great Caesar's ghost, is everybody around here gone crazy? Meanwhile, Lois has found Maria Maleska's cabin only to discover the girl has been struck on the head. She attempts to aid Maria, but is knocked unconscious by one of Crane's men. Superman has found Lois and Maria. Miss Lane will be all right, Superman. That's fine, Doctor. What about Miss Maleska? Well, her condition is critical. Her skull has been fractured. I'd like to find the man that did it. Will she regain consciousness? She should. There. She's coming to now. May I question her, Doctor? Briefly. Miss Moleska. Who are you? Superman. I'm your friend. I have heard of you. You are good. So lock it. It is gone. We'll find it for you later. But right now, I want... Father's formula was in the locket. Formula? Yes. He was sure I... Oh, no. I must not talk. Only to the president. 
The locket was around your neck? You must find it, Superman. It is the only defense. Defense? Against what? You, you must find it. You must... She'll be all right, but she can't be questioned anymore. May I take her to a hospital? She can't be moved right now. I'll take care of Miss Molesky and Miss Lane. You find that locker. I'll certainly try. Neither Clark nor Superman had any luck finding him. You say Superman couldn't find a fellow on the train? No, I'm going to look around some more, but... You are? Uh, I mean, Superman is. Meanwhile, call Inspector Henderson. Tell him to try and pick up that organ grinder. Better get our own staff working on it, too. Don't tell me what to do. Stop that. Stop that. Wait a minute, Kent. Tony Ermenti, organ grinder. Body found Metropolis River, foot of 24th Street. Knife wound in heart. Hmm. What is it, Chief? You better get over to the city morgue as quick as you can, Kent. I have a hunch the story is blown up in our face. Crane has just received word that his man Joe has Maria's lock. Now he must only wait for a European agent named Frisch to give him the money promised for the job. Daily Planet staff is having difficulty locating the information needed to solve this new mystery. I wonder what's in that formula. She said it was a defense against something. Atomic bomb. If it is, Kent, we've got to get it. The monkey. What? The organ grinder's monkey. It's probably at the bottom of the river. I wonder. Anyhow, the monkey can talk. What's the difference? It might give us a lead. Chief, it was a cute little animal. It had a, a Superman's costume on. Superman? That's right. A lot of people must have noticed it. Look, Chief, let's put a special bullet in our news broadcast asking anyone who saw the monkey to please call in. I doubt that anything will come of it. But what can we lose? Go ahead. Yes, sir. A citywide search for Pepe has begun. Even Crane, who has Melissa's discovery on microfilm, is desperately looking for the monkey in a Superman suit. Well, this we get two hundred thousand dollars. Not bad. This kind of work pays better than the rackets. Anyone seeing a brown monkey dressed in a Superman costume and answering to the name Peppy, please communicate with Clark Kent at the Daily Planet or the police at once. Or anyone having any special knowledge of this monkey or its owner, the late Tony Ormenti, an organ grinder, please contact this paper or the police without delay. And now the news. Today, the United Nations. What's the idea? I kind of like the news. What'd you do with the monkey? Nothing. It got away. Got away how? When I caught up with Tony, see? I walked him down the alley a ways to where the car was before I let him have it. While I was loading him into the car, the monk scrammed. Scrammed where? I told you. Up the alley. It went over a fence. I wasn't going to chase it with a stiff in the car. What for? For? What for? Yeah. Find that monkey. Find it and get rid of it. Jimmy is closer to getting Peppy when Crane's henchman grabs him. I certainly will if I see him, but I don't know where he is any more than you do. Right. Goodbye. Hey, listen, Chief. Those fellas must think Superman works for the Daily Planet. What? Who? Washington. The Atomic Energy Commission. They want that Maleska formula. Oh. So do I. Have you seen Jim around? Ferguson sent him out on a story about an hour ago. Why? The rest of the staff's gone home, and I wanted Jim to stand by in case anyone called in about that monkey. I just made the news broadcast. There isn't a chance in a million anything will come of that. Very White speaking. Hello, Chief. I, I mean, Mr. White. Is Mr. Kent there? Just a minute. Speak of the devil. Jim? Yeah. Hello, Jim. Listen, Mr. Kent, here's a funny thing. A kid phoned the office about an hour ago. He has one of our paper routes. He said there's a monkey in his alley. What? 
Where was this? Out in the Maywood section. Ferguson thought it might make a nice feature for the nature page, so he sent me out on it. Where, Jim? And get this. The monkey's wearing a Superman costume. Listen to me, Jim. Exactly where is that monkey? Behind the 1300 block on Maywood Boulevard, in an alley. Where are you now? At a drugstore corner of 13th Place in Maywood. You get back to that monkey and hang on to him. Don't let him get away, whatever you do. Do you understand? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll be there in a few minutes. Jim found the monkey. Great Caesar's ghost. I better get over there. I'll go with you. I have the girl on the switchboard called police headquarters. The thug and Jimmy fight over the animal, and Peppy gets away. And Jimmy is caught by Max. The police have Harold Crane's apartment building surrounded. Peppy, who was with Clark Kent, has climbed the same pipe to give the spy a false message. To be clear, Peppy climbed the pipe, not Clark Kent. That would be a sight to see. <laughs> he, shoots, he shoots at the monkey, but Superman blocks the bullet. Superman then knocks Crane and Max's heads together. But then now unconscious... Superman unties Jimmy and hands him the Maleska formula to give to the police. And Jimmy has one question at the end. Hey, what happened to Peppy? Well, Peppy is hungry after a hard day's work and is on the desk eating a banana. Bob, what do you think of this episode? Oh, that's what I think of every first season episode. What a great, great, great episode this is. And as a kid, I'm not quite sure how kids... Well, I guess you could follow it. It's laid out pretty quickly, pretty nicely. But I think the opening of this would scare little kids. And I think it would have scared little kids in several of these episodes. But this one, when the father and the daughter are running away from what we can only imagine are terrible government, bad government people. And, and picture people. This is 1951. We're only six short years, five years, six years after World War II. So now we're getting into spies and, and threats of nuclear, even though they call it atomic, a nuclear atomic stuff is going on. It's very serious stuff in the news. And this show is acting very serious. Let's, you know, the shadows on the cave wall, the story that the father tells the daughter to get her to take this and give it to only the president of the United States. Right. You know, it's just... It's so serious and so dark and so, well, in modern terms, it's a dark and edgy opening to this thing. Uh, even on the train, when the bad guy is already knocked out, her and how he hits Lois upside the head. It's a hardcore, again, mystery drama and uh, shot in black and white. Yeah, I just think it's a terrific, terrific overall, terrific episode. And uh, George is looking good. Yeah, Large and in charge, man. When he shows up on the train two or three times, has some real nice scenes of him just looking good. Everybody looks and acts good in this one. This is a real solid episode. You know, and when we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get to that scene. When he's on the train, that is some angry Superman right there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a ticked off Superman. Yeah. Yeah. And what you mentioned about the stuff about the cave scene, very dark, very scary looking. And when... After Maria gets away, they're making no bound bones about it. These soldiers are whipping him. Yeah, yeah. And they right on, to, right they on beat the him screen. to death. They beat him to death. Pretty and hardcore. It is. And after Maria gets, gets away, after we see her father get beaten to death, we see this image of Maria and the various modes of travel that she's using. It kind of brought me back to Superman on Earth when Clark is arriving in Metropolis. And you see him in the middle of the screen, kind of transparent. And you see this, the, the various shots of the city around him. 
Right, little montage right. type stuff of him walking through the city and that kind of stuff. Right. Same thing. This was a this was standard. That was a standard type of effect done in both movies and TV shows of the time. Not as much in TV because it was kind of expensive to do the right. this stuff. But people don't quite understand. Sometimes modern people will look back at some of these episodes and think how hokey some of the, the, the effects are, and you can see the outline of certain things on the mat shots right. and stuff. But for the time, this was state-of-the-art technology. This was big-time stuff. One of the things I'm trying to do, especially with this show, I'm not watching them on my 55-inch TV. Mm. <laughs> I'm watching them on my computer, and I'm kind of making the screen a little small. Okay. So I'm trying to watch it as best I can as it was. Right. At least the size. Obviously, right. the DVDs are far clearer than anything that was broadcast then. Right. So I'm going to be really interested when I get to the stolen costume. <laughs> because as far as the picture quality goes, that episode has not aged very well. No, and they've never... I understand that Warner Brothers somewhere does have all of the original 35mm film. And there's been several organizations that have tried to get them to do the remaster when it was released on DVD. Right. They, they still haven't done it. And they keep giving the same version of stolen costume on every release of the DVDs or anywhere. And it's not a good copy. It's not a good copy. That might actually be the closest I'll ever get to seeing one of those episodes as it might have looked like back then. <laughs> right. Kind of <laughs> kind of fuzzy and little scrapes on this film. And right. It's, yeah, it's not in good shape. First thing that jumps out to me is that Harold Crane's only going to get paid $200,000, but I guess inflation. That was a tremendous amount, amount of money in 1951. Average salary of your regular middle class guy in 1951 was three to $4,000 a year. Not thirty-four thousand, three or four thousand right. a year. Okay. Now, and granted, everything was a lot cheaper. Right. But still, I always go back to semi-private eye, the hamburger, the hamburger combo for seventy-five cents. Mm-hmm. After her little montage, we see the plane arrive in Metropolis, and the other reason I'm pointing this out is because I think that's New York in the background. I thought I saw the Empire State Building as uh, that plane flew over the uh, the background. Yeah, in these days, Metropolis was a pseudonym for uh, New York. Right. Weird, because they're using real cities. They are you. The name of that train line is real. Right. From Washington to um, wherever it was going, they mentioned the cities. They even mentioned my hometown, Richmond, Virginia, at one point in right. one of these episodes. I'm not sure it was this one, but might have been this one. Mm-hmm. That always throws me a little bit. Having being from New York, right. seeing New York stand in for Metropolis always throws me off. Right. So this is where we meet Tony and his monkey. And like I said before, you can't go wrong with monkeys. Can't go wrong with monkey and an organ grinder. No. I don't know what song he was playing on no, his own. He was playing a circus song. Yeah. So, <laughs> of course, because the plot demands it, Lois gets the... The wrong fortune. Exactly. And doesn't show it to Clark. And apparently he doesn't use his x-ray vision or any supervision or any tricks of any kind to read what the the note says. It's always unclear what tricks he has. (laughs) No. And when he chooses to use them. Right. Because, you know, looking through the prism of today, we know what all his vision powers are now. Right. But they were still kind of iffy back then. 
Right. Everything well, was his x-ray vision. Everything was based on the x-ray vision. He melted things with the heat of his x-ray vision. So even when he was looking two blocks away or wherever he was looking in the last time, looking right. at Jimmy in the safe, all we really get was that he was using x-ray vision. But if what they showed us was what he saw, right. he was using a combination of telescopic and x-ray vision. So you got to figure by now, half Metropolis is glowing in the dark from his x-ray vision. <laughs> this organ grinder is hilariously incompetent. <laughs> he loses his important paper, and, and he realized it. And he's hysterical, chasing her down with, it, with his organ around his neck. Yeah, not a good future for Tony. I don't think Tony's going to have a future. No. Maybe for a few minutes. Nope. Well, well, as soon as he told the boss that, one, he knew what was on the note, and two, he no longer has the note and gave it to somebody else, your days are numbered, yes. Mr. Organ Grinder. And apparently, in addition to all of his other work, Jimmy is Lois's travel agent. Of course. Because he booked her flight, and it seems like, especially early on, Jack was used for exposition. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, all throughout a lot of the uh, the six seasons, he's used for both exposition and then, of course, comic relief in the fourth, fifth, and sixth season. Third through six, actually. All right, so back to the monkey. Yay for the yeah. monkey. Monkeys on TV equal good shows. Monkeys on comic book covers sell comics. They do. Bob Fisher on my podcast increases downloads. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Well, let's see what happens after the Superman on Earth uh, episode comes out, which is just me. And actually, you know, this uh, monkey is kind of cute. And he's fun, you know. And, and like most of us, he works for Bananas. Bananas. No, don't, tell my, don't tell my boss that. She might try paying me in Bananas. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I love the scene of Jimmy getting chewed out by Perry because he doesn't know where Lois is. Right. Lois just had poor Jimmy do all of her dirty work. Well, Jimmy was used for that a lot. I mean, you know, if you want to get, he was a cub reporter. So, you know, a lot of times they will use the trope almost like it's some sort of military hierarchy that there's even an episode later where boys take over and become editor and police right. chief and all that. And Clark even outranks Perry White in that particular episode. And they made that kind of a, a thing. So here uh, it would not be unusual for both Clark or, or Lois to have Jimmy do things for them in the office. Right. These days, we call cub reporters interns. Right. right. And they don't get paid. Right. But I think he was getting paid. Yeah, he was. He, he worked there. This is also our first two Great Caesars ghosts of this series. Perry yells, Great Caesars ghost twice during this scene at Jimmy. We still haven't gotten a Don't Call Me Chief yet, though. Mm. Won't and be long. Perry has absolutely no control over his staff. <laughs> Everybody just runs in and out on him. And... You know, I think John Hamilton plays irritated and overwhelmed Perry White extremely well. Oh, my God, yeah. He's just so good. Yeah, he's a perfect Perry White. Right. For as tough and as gruff as he is, a lot of the times, he just has no idea what the hell's going on in his own office. <laughs> right. And I love the scenes where he's got like five or six telephones on his desk, and they're all ringing, and he can't answer the right one. Yes, that's Superman on Earth the first time we ever see him. Yeah, it's just hysterical. Yeah. It was Perry White in his most raw. Yeah, loved answering it. Answering all the phones, screaming at everything. Oh, I love that. We're now at Lois on the train. And Lois has found Mar Mariska's daughter, Maria, knocked out 
And what struck me is she's bleeding here. They're actually showing blood on this show. Absolutely. And they, they're going to show blood in the next episode, too, of Night of Terror. Yeah. So they're not really pulling any punches. They don't in the first season. First season, as I say, it's it's an adult crime drama noir. Oh, by the way, Superman's in it. Right. We get another great Phyllis Coach scream as she's knocked out. Mm-hmm. And Superman is right on his way. And I like the shot th- through the clouds following the train. Yeah. I believe this is the first time we see that extreme close-up of Superman flying in this series where he flies toward the camera and moves downward under right right that is a that is a favorite shot right of him flying and they'll use that one again and again and again and again yeah but it's a it's a great shot yeah one of my like i said one of my favorites like i said the doctor here is tommy carr's brother what i find interesting here is that when she wakes up when maria wakes up despite her fractured skull she's heard of superman yeah, that's interesting because half the people in Metropolis haven't heard of him. Right. And several more episodes to come where people give him the look like, who are you? Right. What are you all about? Right. But yeah, yeah apparently this woman from, from Eastern Europe away. somewhere has heard of Superman. Right. Interesting note there. Mm-hmm. Nothing of it. You just kind of file it and move on. Right. And she basically assigns Superman to find the locket. And like I mentioned, this is the George is playing a very golden age Superman here. Like I could see this Superman punching a hole in the train because he's fresh braided. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like kind of an avenging angel of justice. This is Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's Superman come to life. And uh, here is another secret identity flub. As Clark tells Perry, he's going to look around, <laughs> but corrects himself to, t- to tell him that Superman is. Because I love Perry's reaction. You! Oh, no. Superman is. So if you count the two in Mole Men, this is three. Right. <laughs> and like I said, I'm going to be keeping track of this. And they've decided that they're going to go look for the organ grinder. But do you want to guess what Jimmy comes in with now? Jimmy comes in with a note. And guess what the note says? We've pulled no. the <laughs> we've pulled the organ grinder out of the river. Got a dead organ grinder. Yeah. So then Clark gets on the radio. Yes, he does. So Clark and Perry are back at the office now. And... They wildly speculate that this formula is a defense against an atomic bomb. If it is. I mean, obviously this was the big threat those days, but I just love how that's where they go. That's instantly where they go. Right. And because Perry guessed it, that's what it is. Leap of logic. Let's go. That what it must be. Well, you know, you can kind of put it together if you knew what that who that scientist was right. and maybe what things he might have been working on. And if someone is risking their lives to get it out, then maybe it probably has something to do with nuclear right. uh, weapons. So I don't know what's going to protect people from an atom bomb, but apparently this formula is maybe, <laughs> maybe putting up a shield. and obviously Perry's reaction is we've got to get it what is Perry going to do with it call his buddies in the military Right. this is the first time I've noticed that Clark apparently does radio work as well yep radio voiceovers and I think it's really funny at one point in one episode Superman is listening to the radio for news and it's actually Clark Kent's voice doing the voiceover as if he's a whole different other character right it's very funny. 
So as the broadcast comes over, our two criminals are looking at are looking at the microfilm. And I'm listening to this, and Clark is telling the, the people to call the paper before calling the police. Scoop. That's his job. Yeah. Get the scoop. I'll have yeah. a double. And this is where we learned the monkey got away, and apparently everybody is after this monkey. Well, he's got a Superman suit on. How hard can it be to find a monkey dressed as Superman? <laughs> really? And I love the scare Perry gives Clark when he comes back into the office when he says, these people must think Superman works for the Daily Planet. Looks like Clark almost has a heart attack there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Chief. <laughs> he's like, what? Like his shoulders just kind of sag after, with relief after he says, they're looking for the formula. George sells all this stuff very well. Jimmy, yeah, none of these actors play it campy. They they play it for real. It's serious work. It's it it's uh, it's a serious drama, and they're playing it that way. Even when the episodes get silly, they're still playing it seriously. Yes, they do. They do. Yes, got to give these guys credit for that, man. They they stuck in there the whole way and did it all. What I find interesting when Jimmy calls into Perry, yeah, he corrects himself from calling him chief. Oh yeah, he stopped himself right. But we still haven't gotten a Don't Call Me Chief yet. <laughs> and, of course, Jimmy happens to have found the monkey. Did he find the monkey or did the crook find the monkey and he tried to take it away from the crook? He found the monkey and the crook is taking it away from right. him. Gotcha. I think Perry frustrated Clark here a little bit after this phone call because I don't think Clark wanted any part of Perry coming with him. Because Oh, right. Because right. now he can't turn he can't change into Superman. Exactly. No, that happens several times throughout yeah. the episode where, to add to the suspense and drama, they make one of the other crew go with Clark. Right. You know, and I kind of like seeing Perry leave his desk for once. Yeah. But like I mentioned during the serials, Pierre Watkin never left his office. Ah, okay. Well, this Perry White will. There are several yes. stories that revolve around Perry getting out there and uh, doing stuff, too. So, oh, yes, you are right. Here's my note that uh, the criminal does have the monkey. Okay. And right. Jimmy is showing some guts here. Right? He's trying to... Hey, give me that monkey. Yeah, he's trying to take the monkey back. And he does what Jimmy does best by getting punched out. <laughs> right. And carried off. I don't know why the guy didn't just leave him there. Now the criminals have no monkey, but they, but they have Jimmy. Right. I'm not sure what they're going to do with Jimmy, but they need the monkey. And the monkey they has... The monkey. And the monkey got away. Fair enough. But apparently Clark ends up with the monkey. And he puts the monkey to work right away. Right away. He knows what to do. Yeah. Then he leaves Perry with the monkey. And this shot here, the shot of Perry hanging by the pipe with his hat on. Yeah. I think we see that picture of Perry, of John Hamlet with Perry White quite a bit. Yeah, they they replay it several times. And Czar of the Underworld, maybe? Or is it Crime Wave? I think it's Crime Wave that uses it several times. Whenever when they seem to need a stock, a stock shot of a publicity still of John Hamlet and Perry White, it's this scene. Yeah. So apparently Superman follows the monkey up to Crane's little apartment. And I believe this is the first time we see George Reeves impersonate Kirk Allen by picking these guys up and banging their heads together. <laughs> yeah. That was Kirk Allen's uh, favorite mode of dealing with criminals. Right. Well, it's Superman's favorite yeah. mode back then in the day. Uh, I think he even did it in the radio serial. Right. Didn't look as cool, though. No, not at all. <laughs> But yeah, George will use that technique several more times throughout the series. Right. When he was, especially once he wasn't allowed to punch anybody anymore. Right. No, in the first series, though, in this first season, it's full-blown knock him out. Oh, absolutely. Full, full fist, knock him in the head. Do what you got to do. And now, 
after he frees Jimmy, do you recall seeing Robert Shane at all in this episode? Uh, Monkey Mystery. No, no, I don't. Inspector, according to Superman, Inspector Henderson's down there. Hmm. I was like, oh, I don't recall seeing him. Hmm. But I thought the ending of this episode was a little unsatisfying, though. Aside from Perry's assumption that the formula is a defense, we never really find out what it is. Right, right. You know? Well, that wasn't totally important. The people were saved. The information yeah. got where it's supposed to go. And we kind of move on with our day. Exactly. Okay. Superman comes in, saves the day, and goes away, and Clark writes the story. Yeah. And hopefully, Lois wants to know how. Right. And hopefully <laughs> uh, they recovered Lois from that train. Yeah, I, I think they probably did. Because she shows up again next week. She does. <laughs> and she's taking a vacation. And she's taking a vacation. And All right. So, got anything else on this episode? That's it. Good one, though. Good it's, one. A, it's a really, really good one. Again, crime mystery. So there's more mystery in that first season. Yes. I don't know if I've said it before, but it's my favorite season yes. of the Superman show. You know, as I'm going <laughs> through these things, half these titles seem to have mystery and the word mystery in them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's what it was. It was a crime mystery drama. And I loved it. And the time period, this was a lot of, you know, what was going on in the media and stuff and TV okay. shows at the time. So fit right in. It was a hit. It was a huge hit. All right. So let's take a quick break. I'll play a promo and then we'll come back with A Night of Terror. All right. Automa, Argus, Automa, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channelman, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Gloria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongoloid, Myriad, Nightblade, Output, Pass, Prism, Razor Shark, Rodney Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terrorist. Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, Diablo Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories, all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcast available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to move right ahead into A Night of Terror. This this episode was originally broadcast on October 24th, 1952, written by Ben Peter Freeman and directed by Lee Sholem, who I believe also directed Superman and the Mole Men. Correct. Guest cast was Richard Benedict as Babyface Stevens, Frank Richards as Sully, Ann Doran as Mrs. King, John Kellogg as Mitch, Almira Sessions as Miss Backrack. Paul Breyer as the motel owner, Stephen Carr as Mr. Quinn, and Joel Friedkin as Oscar. So, and go straight to our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. All seems quiet at the lodge called the Restwell Tourist Cabins in the Blue Hills. There is a sign that reads vacancy, and a radio is playing dance music. Further, further examination as Lois walks in reveals an overturned lamp 
and a woman's body lying face down behind the reception desk. After some time without a response from anyone, Lois finds the injured woman and a burly, suspicious character with a long scar near his left eye named Sully approaches her. That woman's been hurt. She's... So what? A desperate Mitch has just called his boss. He and Sully are to watch over Lois and the other woman while they wait for professional assassin Babyface Stevens to arrive. Sully has locked the women in the lodge's second cabin. He then begins to tell Mitch about the hitman whom they are expecting. Babyface Stevens is a killer with a sense of humor. His method of murder is to empty his gun of all bullets except for one for each target, because he never misses. Mitch is nervous about waiting for Babyface Stevens. It's become clear to him that the Restwell Tourist Lodge is about to become a hotbed of activity. He puts up the no vacancy sign while Sully moves Lois' car out of sight. Mrs. King, the woman in cabin number two with Lois, is crying hysterically. Talking down to the last captain, the, the two of them and Frank, my husband. I heard a shot and ran out. I saw Solly, that's the big one, dragging Frank down into the gully behind the cabins. Then, then the other one, the one they call Mitch, grabbed me and took me back into the office and, and he hit me in the face and everything went black. Mrs. King, what's behind all this? <laughs> I can't help you unless you tell me everything. How can you help me? Frank's dead. He killed him. I don't care what happens to me. Shh. You mustn't talk like that. What's the difference? The difference is we've got to get out of this. Now, please try to pull yourself together. That's better. Now, how did all this start? Tell me what happened. They, they, they were using this place as a hideout for criminals. We're only 20 miles from the Canadian border. They, they, they'd keep them here during the daytime, and at night they'd sneak them over the line into Canada. We didn't know what they were doing until tonight. Take it slowly. When my husband found out, he, he tried to call the police, and they killed him. <laughs> Lois is reassuring Mrs. King that everything will be okay if she can sneak through the back window to the telephone booth outside. Sully is standing guard nearby, making it a challenge for Lois. Lois was able to secretly enter the telephone booth to contact the police. Hello, operator. I want the police. Hurry, please. Operator, this is an emergency. Please hurry. I'm sorry, but the sheriff's office doesn't answer. I'll keep trying. Thank you.
Operator. Operator? Never mind that call. Get me, get me the Daily Planet in Metropolis. Metropolis 60500 and reverse the charges. Hurry, please. Superman is in his office changing into the guise of reporter Clark Kent. Jimmy Olsen has just entered the room to discuss going to a White Sox baseball game with Kent. However, Inspector Henderson has just given Clark a lead on the Ellsworth Jewel robbery. He must leave to speak with Henderson about it. Shortly after Clark has left, Lois's call arrives. Clark Kent's office, Jim Olsen speaking. Jim, this is Lois. I thought I'd never get through to you. Oh, hi, Miss Lane. Uh, Jim, put Clark on. He just walked out the door. We'll see if you can catch him, Jim. Hurry, please. I'm in trouble. Hold on. Hello? Hello? Clark? No, I, I couldn't catch him, Miss Lane. Jim, listen to me. Find Clark or the chief. Tell him I'm at the Restwell Tourist Cabins. No, no, Restwell. R-E-S-T. It's on Highway 15. It's in the Blue Hills. I'm in trouble, Jim, and if... And if... Hello? Hello, Miss Lane? Hello? Hello? Operator, I, I was just talking to someone and I was disconnected. No, I, I don't know the number. Unfortunately, Jimmy cannot get in touch with Clark. And Sully has caught Lois. Miss Backrack, Lois Lane's in trouble, and I can't get a hold of Mr. Kent, and, and the chief's in Boston, so I'm going up there myself. Calm down. I can't calm down. It's an emergency. Look, is the chief's car in the parking lot? Why, uh, yes, I believe so. Okay, I'm going to take it. <sighs> Give this note to Mr. Kent. You'll have a nervous breakdown one of these days. Make sure he gets this when he comes in. I'm going out to supper. Okay. I leave it on his desk. Miss Backrack has left Jimmy's message on Clark Kent's desk, but the paper flies onto the floor where she leaves and closes the office door. The events of the evening have been pretty intense. Sully has tied up Lois in the cabin with Mrs. King. Clark is searching frantically for the note Jimmy had written for him. Well, it isn't there now. I'm sorry, Mr. Kent. Did you read it? Well, uh, I glanced at it. Do you remember what was in it? Well, frankly, I didn't pay much attention. That silly Olsen boy. Never mind about Jim. What was in that boat? You don't have to shout at me, Mr. Kent. Unfortunately, Oscar, the janitor, has thrown the paper into the garbage to burn. Ashes are all that's left of the message. Miss Backrack has recalled something about Sleepwell or Deepwell being the name of the place where Jimmy was going. This gives Clark a clue of which he tells Mr. Quinn of the National Association of Tourist Camps. There's a well in the name, Mr. Quinn. Well, W-E-L-L, -L. is that right? Sleep well, or deep well, or something like that. Sleep well, or deep well, or something like uh, that. I'll check through our files, Mr. Kent, and call you back. You're very fortunate I happen to be working late tonight. Thank you, Mr. Quinn. I'll wait here in my office. Very well. Meanwhile, the gangster Mitch has grown impatient and nervous. Should Babyface Stevens not arrive in five minutes, both he and Sully will kill Mrs. King and Lois themselves. Jimmy Olsen has, has arrived at the Restwell Tourist Cabins, and much to his surprise, Mitch and Sully believe him to be, to be Babyface Stevens. Hiya, Babyface. Could you fellas tell me where I could find Miss Lane? I think she's in trouble. You see what I mean, Mitch? Always gang. <laughs> Do you know what cabin she's in? They're in number two, both of them. Here's the key. Oh, gee, thanks. Wait a minute. You packing a rod? Huh? No rod, huh? How you figure to handle this? I don't know what you mean. Let's kill the gags. The boss likes his jobs done clean. 
No mess and no fingerprints. I don't know what he's paying you to knock off these two dames, but let's get it done fast and clean, huh? Sally, give me a ride. Sure. Hey! You don't need more than one slug piece knockoff, right? Hey, our baby face, all set. Two slugs. We'll be watching you. Go ahead. At the same time, Mr. Quinn has given Clark three different lodges with the word well in the name. Letting Miss Backrack out of his office rather forcibly, Clark removes his suit to become Superman. Jimmy has entered the cabin in which Lois and Mrs. King are being held. He cuts the ropes. However, Jimmy still must act fast. As Superman searches for Lois and Jimmy, Mitch and Sully are growing impatient with Jimmy. At the moment, a car pulls up and the real babyface Stevens has arrived. And he proves this to the other two gangsters by punching them. Because assaulting people proves you are who you say you are. Stevens has gained a reputation in the underworld for being tough. The hitman then creates two situations that cause Jimmy to empty the gun. Babyface has three bullets prepared for Mrs. King, Lois, and Jimmy. But Superman swoops into the cabin before they can be used. Shots are fired into the air as Superman forces Babyface's arm upwards. The three bad guys attack. However, like Babyface's knife, the thug's punches do not even scratch him. Sully and Mitch and Babyface have been defeated. And this leaves Lois to ask Superman how he had known that she, Jimmy, and Mrs. King were in trouble. Superman, you're wonderful. How did you know we were in trouble? Little Bird told me. Bet you the little bird's name was Clark Kent. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> so, Bob, what do you think with this episode of this episode? Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. This is all Phyllis Coates here. This is really, 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 really good. One little behind the scenes thing in that scene when uh Lois walks in again, very dark, very spooky when the, and a great camera shot from one camera as it pans around the office of the hotel room to then seeing the woman lying on the floor behind the desk. It's all very spooky. You think at first, maybe she's dead. Lois comes in and it's a great scene and she confronts the bad guy for the first time and a little behind the scenes trivia. She hits the bad guy with her purse, and then he hits her in the eye, and she falls down. In the shooting, he actually cold cocked her. He actually hit her in that scene. Phyllis Coates goes down. The director comes over. They look at her. They get her back. She's still very groggy, and they, they force her to shoot the scene. They put a little makeup on it and force her to finish the scene before the eye starts turning blue and black and swelling. And then she goes to the uh, doctor's emergency room or something after they finish the scene. <laughs> right. But no, I love this episode. This is, this is pure Phyllis Coates at, at, at her best. She's, you know, in charge. She's calm. She's all over the place, sneaking out, making phone calls, fighting bad guys. It's just, just really terrific, terrific episode. I love this episode. I remember, I think the first time I w remember watching this episode was probably... About 10 or so years ago when I picked up this DVD. Right. So this is one of those episodes that, you know, a lot of times I can watch a show and do other things. Uh-huh. Not this episode. No, you want to sit down and watch I this. was watching this episode. Right. You know, Phyllis Coates was great. You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I think some of these episodes wouldn't have worked. They were in color. Right. I think the black and white in this episode adds such a mood. Oh, I think so, Just, too. It helps Absolutely. with suspense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the black and white is part of the whole first season. Not as much in the second season, even though it is in black and white. The second season attitude-wise 
is closer to the attitude and the overall feelings you'll get from the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth season. But the second season shot in black and white, many of those shows could be shot. The black and white didn't add or take away. It was just there. In the first season, I think the black and white is part of the reason that these shows are so spectacular. Because the director and the cinematographer used the black and white genre. These were professional people. These were not just, you know, your average people throw, you know, doing a kid's show. These first 26 episodes, actually 24, you count the mole men as two, but these first season episodes are very serious drama. And the cinematographer and the director used black and white to tell that story. And they used it as if it were another character in these stories. You know, several of them that come to mind that where it just wouldn't work. And, and I think I'll be back on your show when we talk about Evil 3 later on down the road. Where you couldn't reshoot that in color. It would not have been the same show in color. And I think this one is similar to that. This one probably could be done in color if the color palette is chosen properly. Right. But the black and white adds to the idea that this is a cabin motel in the hills, almost a psycho feel to it. There's something weird and strange going on at this hotel. And the black and white just adds to the to that drama. There's something strange going on at the planet, too, but we'll get to that. <laughs> right. Now, again, we see blood in this episode, too, as Lois checks the unconscious woman who, when I first saw this, episode, I thought she was dead. Well, yeah, I think that was... She reaches around, you see she wipes blood off her head. Right, that's what they were trying to give the impression right uh, right off the bat that, yes, is dead. And then we find out later that her husband has been killed by these guys, so... And like you mentioned, this is is the famous scene where Phyllis Cota actually gets punched. And I look closely, because when I was watching it the other night, I was like, I didn't notice it. I was like, wait a minute, where's the moment where Lois gets punched? I know it's in here. So I went back to the beginning. I right. always thought it was later in the episode. Mm. You know, there was a very hard cut. Very during, hard cut. During during yeah. that punch. So it looks like they they filmed Sully's wind-up. And then there was a very hard cut to after the punch was thrown. So they didn't actually – they cut out the bit where he got her in the eye. Well, it, they, they did cut it a little bit. But what the hard cut is is because they had to reshoot that scene because apparently – he came out of character for a bit once he realized he had hit her and looked right. at the camera and looked at the director or something and was in a little bit of shock. And that's when people came over and said, oh, no, no, no. Okay, fine. Yeah, I'll take it from here. Okay, get her makeup, blah, blah, blah. Stand up. Take it from from right after the punch. So they kind of faked her falling. And uh, I hear there is somewhere film of that. I've never actually looked right. for it. but they, didn't, they did not show the impact. No, you don't actually see it on the versions that are available now. It's a very hard cut. And I believe the look on the actor's face was, oh, crap, did I just get fired? Right. Right. As we already mentioned, this is a very good Lois-centric episode. This was Lois's version of The Haunted Lighthouse, which focused solely on her and her resourcefulness. Exactly. And we have some comic relief with the secretary. Oh, there's a lot of comic relief in this episode. Yeah. She was almost a cartoon character. Almost. And a little bit of comic relief with these two criminals, Sully and this other guy. Right. Because they're sitting there the whole time kind of pouting that they're not going to get the job to kill Lois. What do you say? 
You locked the dames up? Yeah, second cabin. What the boss say? He's sending a torpedo out to knock them off. What's the idea? What's the matter with us? We ain't good enough, I guess. Who's he sending? Some rider just blew in from Chicago. A, a babyface something. A babyface Stevens? Yeah, you know him? I heard about him. Great kid. Always making with the jokes. And you know what? What? When he does a job, he takes all the slugs out of the gun except one. Never misses. All I say is he better get here fast. This place is hot and wide open. Anybody's liable to pull in like a newspaper dame. Wait a minute. You get a car out of sight. I'll fix it so nobody pulls it. Yeah, why didn't the boss trust them? Why they got to bring this babyface guy in? You know, we it kind of reminds remind me. I listened to your recent episode with John Wilson of Giant Superman Podcast. Kind of made me think of the Superman-Batman story where, where Robin and Batman were pouting about how they weren't good enough to work with Superman anymore. Right. right. Kind of made me think of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Pouton, why can't we get... Well, we could knock her off, boss. And really, when you think about it, this episode is about Lois waiting for her own execution. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. How can she stall and figure out to get out of the trap? But it was a great scene when Lois is with the woman in the in the other room, and yeah. she's got the washcloth on her, and it's Lois that is keeping her, you know, this woman, to keep your stuff together here, you know, keep this, it together. This woman is a wreck. Which is understandable. It absolutely is. Uh, you know, her husband's just been killed in front of her. She thinks she's going to die. She like doesn't know this is Lois Lane, Daily Planet reporter, friend of Superman. She doesn't know everything's going to work out. When we first meet her, it looks like she's given up. Right. She had. Right. Took Lois, Lois is... to talk her back into it and get her back in the real world. And this is obviously where, where once she calms down, she gives us the expositional plot dump about the criminals using the resort to sneak criminals into Canada. Right. So apparently Metropolis isn't that far from the Canadian border because Jimmy gets there awful quickly. Yeah, that's why it makes me think again they're they're placing Metropolis in upstate New York. Yeah. Because anyone who knows New York geography, the Canadian border is a good five hours away mm -hmm. from New York City from New York City. From New York City. Right. Again, we mentioned in the previous episode with great use of shadows here as she's sneaking around at night trying to get to that phone booth. Yeah, it's just so good. And she does a good job hiding from him. Yeah, even the scene where she... And, and it's a nice little touch with the phone booth, with her in the phone booth, and then the light comes on and she, right, she turns hides. it off and she hides real quick and drops down. Uh, it's just so good. It's just so... The, everything about it is so good. It's shot well. The camera's in the right location. The lighting, the shadows, the way that the bad guys look like bad guys. Yes. You know, they look thuggish and, you know... Their suits are just big and the fedoras. Everything about them looks looks like there's just trouble. Sully's face with that scar is looking all kinds of thuggish. Yeah. Yeah, Sully's great. He's a great and, bad guy. And I like how we just got close enough to the phone booth to make Lois think she, he might have seen her. Right. But doesn't. Right. But he looks at the phone booth like he kind of knows something's up. And, of course, this is episode is where the good guys are just off, are just off this episode. Everybody's slow today right you can't get a hold of the police right and i love it when the guy is eating his sandwich when Clint, yeah. when uh, clark calls him right he's eating his sandwich and it's so funny when he goes well one second and, I'll and he goes over and like goes through a rolodex of some kind yeah. and it's just like the third or fourth guy it's just okay i guess that's well, that's how they had to do research. imagine right. if you have to do research boys and girls out there in podcast land 
today you have to do research. You go clickety, clickety, clickety. Oh, Google just told me everything I need to know. Wiki tells me that's all I needed to know about everything. And there it is right there. No, in 1951, you had to go to a library. You had to go to Hall of Records. You had to go to courthouses and places. You had to actually go physically to places or, like Clark is doing, have some connections and call someone who has that information on paper that they can look up in the filing cabinet right. if it's there and proper. It's just terrific. I love it. It is. And none of the good guys, have, other than Clark and Jimmy, have any kind of sense of urgency. No, none. But Clark and Jimmy, right on it. And, of course, Mrs. Uh, Crabtree Blankwell. What's her name? The- Backrack. Backrack. <laughs> Bert's grandmother. Bert so, Backrack. So, obviously, in this universe, who are you going to call if you can't get to the police? Ghostbusters? Well, no. Not, well, not yet. But you, you call the Daily Planet. You're going to call the Daily Planet because they're the next best thing to call. Of course. And thank, well, God, thank God for Lois, everybody is working late tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And No, they're good reporters. They're always working late. I like how we see Clark for the first time. He is in his office changing back. And, and Jimmy's outside. Jim, and the shirt is unbuttoned and you see the costume underneath of it. Underneath it's, it. It's the closest thing we get to a, uh, a shirt rip, second only to Panic in the Sky. Right. But it's kind of a reverse. He's putting yeah. the Clark Kent clothes on. But it shows us as the viewers – and me as a kid, and even today, I love that little 15 seconds or so of Jimmy knocking on the door, and we're oh, seeing yes. Clark put his costume back on. And just as first, just before that, you see Superman in Clark's office, full Superman costume. Right. And then he reaches up to, the, to his shoulder where the cape is attached as if he's going to detach the cape. Right. And then it cuts... We see Jimmy coming around, knocking on the door, cut back to Clark, and he has his Clark Kent clothes on, but his shirt is unbuttoned, and he's talking to Jimmy through the door while he buttons his shirt up. This brings us to our fourth secret identity flub of the series. Was it a flub? I think it is. He sees Jimmy through the door and says, come on in, Jimmy. Hello, Jim. Come on in. How'd you know it was me? Don't you know that I have X-ray vision? Oh, sure, just like Superman. That's right. Oh, because he tells Jimmy that it's that he knows it's Jimmy. Right. Before it, And then he says, he, when he, Jimmy's asked, and he says, didn't you know I have X-ray vision? Yeah, it's true. You mean like Superman? Oh, yeah. 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 Right. So. Very funny. The lowest, I'm not sure I'm going to go along with, though, on that as being a real flub. Right. Because he was kind of doing that on purpose. Yeah, he's playing fast and loose with it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a little too fast and loose. That wasn't one of the, I I mean, or, yeah. uh, Superman. That was him kind of, you know, giving a little wink, wink, nudge, right. nudge to you and to Jimmy a little bit. But I love Jack Larson's little take on that when he actually says, you mean like Superman? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. I love that little scene. Lois finally gets through to Jimmy, of all, of all people. So of it course. is... It's apparently night at the planet, even though the stock shot of the planet building showed us uh, that it was daytime. But it, it's night. And, of course, like everybody is just missing each other. Clark just left. Jimmy can't find him. So, so Lois gives Jimmy the information, and Jimmy does everything right, you know, except for the Grand Theft Auto that he's about to commit. <laughs> you know? And as she's giving the information, we got a great Phyllis Coates scream right here as she's caught. 
She could scream with the best of them. So this is a. So Jimmy calls Inspector Henderson. Obviously, that's where Clark is going, and apparently Clark didn't either didn't go there or, or, or what? Because you're getting the sense that the receptionist Jimmy's talking to has no idea what Jimmy's talking about. It just seems like the telephone operators and the receptionists are a little dense today, because even Lois was having trouble getting the operator to connect her to somebody. Apparently, no Clark at Inspector Henderson, and and apparently Perry has gone to Boston. This is when we. Jimmy goes up to Ms. Backrack. We see her for the first time. For some reason, a lot of people call the refer to the receptionist from Superman on Earth as Ms. Backrack too. Hmm. But that first off, that woman was never identified. Yeah, and I didn't she, think they gave her a name. And she was a lot younger. Right. I don't know. Miss Backrack had what do you what do you think of Miss Backrack? I thought she was funny. I think she's just, you know, but she's a cartoon character. Yeah. She's a real cartoon character. But, you know, it fit the part. And, you know, it, it, she is a believable character from that period. Oh, yeah. I have I happen to have known several uh, women like that when I was a little kid that were just, oh, oh no, everything's going to fall apart. Oh, no. Right. No. And she has no time for Jimmy. No. And, and she's she, not taking the time to listen either. No, she's not. She's more more worried about her dinner. And why is she the keeper of... Mr. White's car. Uh, she's his personal secretary. And it was the staff car, the police, I mean, Daily Planet car, right? Well, they, they don't I don't think it's his personal They don't car. specify. Yeah, I don't think Perry has his own personal car. He might. I'm trying to think. Was uh, Evil 3, was that his car or the Planet's car? Yeah, I think he does have his own car, come to think of it. They so. never really specify. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So Jimmy takes the car and goes off to to the resort. Right. Now, it's Jimmy's note that gets lost. Right. Miss Backrack leaves it on the desk, and when she closes the door, the note flies off the table. And she reads it. We see her actually read the note. Right. We do. Put it on the desk, and then go, huh, and walks out and kind of slams the door, and it blows off right. into the trash basket or onto the floor, and then the the janitor puts it in the trash basket. Right. I forgot exactly which way that worked, but and one thing that does stick out the fact that about Miss Backrack, it sticks out that she even exists. Because aside from Superman on Earth, and she that woman was in a different place. She might have been like in the front lobby or something. Right. I think they just stuck a desk outside Clark or Perry's, Perry's office, and yeah. she has never. And this has never been seen before or since. Right. Neither one of them. I think these the only two that I can remember actually are those two. Right. And the only reason they needed her in the Superman on Earth <clears throat> was to give Clark a reason that he couldn't go in directly into Perry's office. He had to go sneak in right. by walking on the window ledge. So we, we go back to the criminals. And they're ready and willing to kill the two women. And apparently this is when the criminals start to take matters into their own hands. Apparently putting up the no vacancy sign is enough to keep anybody from showing up. Well, it keeps the customers away. Some of the stuff on the planet, though, for now is far more interesting. It's, <laughs> here comes the janitor. He's going to empty the trash, and he almost leaves without seeing the note. And he just kind of picks it up and throws it away. So I guess help isn't coming for Lois. But yes. And when Clark gets back from wherever it is he went, he is screaming at Miss Backrack. <laughs> and she looks like she's about to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah, her little heart could explode at any second. Right. But you're right. She looks 
so much like a cartoon here. Yeah, particularly in this scene here with her and Clark and her trying to remember she was actually uh, what was written on Jimmy's note. No, that, that's I don't later. know. That's oh, later. we're not there yet? We're not there yet because oh. this is when we realized the note is gone. Oh, okay. And oh, she's that's insisting right. she left it on the desk. Right. Clark has to go find the note. Right. So we're back We're back to near misses. As Clark goes to the furnace, this is where we learned that Clark's office is on, is on the 28th floor because the bag has a big 28 on it. Nice little piece of trivia. It is. And you, would you guess it? That bag has, empty, has been emptied already. Clark reaches into the fire. <laughs> right. Okay, now this could be a this secret could, this identity. This could be a better secret right. identity flub. Yeah, this is a secret I- To stick your hand in the fire and pull the ashes out right there in front of the janitor. Right. Okay, that is a little bit of a secret identity. Yeah, that is. Okay. Before he was just messing with Jimmy. Right. So, the note is gone, and... We're back. We're back to Miss Backrack, and she's just, she's hysterical at this point. I'm betting she retired after this episode. <laughs> you know, I want to feel bad for her a little bit. You know, Clark is going after her, and it's she right. kind of did her job. Well, she a little bit, yeah, she did, and she, did. she read the note. Good thing she read the note. She read the note. She left it, and right. But this is—is is this the play now? Where now, where he's kind of yelling, and then Clark calls the other place with her sitting there with him or standing there with her. Not yet, because they intercut all of this with everything going on at the mm. hotel. Because the point when he's on the phone and he starts snapping his finger at her to write this stuff down. Right. The, yeah, that comes a little bit later. Like I said, everybody, it's almost like a comedy of missteps. Right. Except nothing is funny about it. Yeah, nothing funny. Very serious thing happening here. And every time they cut back to the hotel, uh, the Restwell Hotel, we see that Lois's situation, and now with Jimmy, is getting very dire. Right. But yet, for as dire as everything's getting, there's a there is a lot of comedy in this episode. Right. I think some of them, Miss Backrack stuff, was a little overdone. But some of the stuff that's coming up with Jimmy is just great because he shows up, and these guys think he's Babyface Stevens. <laughs> right. And if Miss Backrack is doing all of the kind of the overt, look at how flustered I am comedy, Jack Larson does it all with looks of confusion. Yeah, his facial expressions, the way he tugs at his pants, everything about his body language here. There's some just really, you know, classic Jack Larson moments here. And if he has any line at all here, I think his biggest line is, huh? But he oh, he just plays it very well in the looks on his face. Yeah. And and here's the final scene with Miss Backrack where he's on the phone. Okay, now Clark is on the phone to Steve Carr playing the part of Quinn. Yeah, Mr. Quinn, Quinn, the... The tourist cabin, the tourist guy. The tourist guy. So all they have is sleep well, something's well. Sleep well or deep well, something well. Something well. well. And he pulls out three cards and gets back to Kent and tells him the three names they have. It's always in threes. Everything is in threes. Always, always, always. Not just Superman, but any TV show, anytime you ever watch anything. The first two, if you see two cops sitting at the desk looking through other people's papers to find a clue, they'll go to the first one will be, no, too tall, too short. Ah, who's this one? That's it. Every time, it's always the third person. Things come in threes. It's a writing trope. And like I said, I'm still feeling a little bit bad for Miss Packrack because Clark is just. Well, he's all over her. He's he's, He's outright mean. Yeah, he's all over her. He's really upset that she didn't remember what's going on. And, and uh, I think he eventually calms her down. 
But uh, yeah, he's pretty much. And then when he gives her the pencil, yeah, and snaps his finger, write this down, write this down, and she's just hemming and the whole time. <gasps> yeah. But uh, I never. And then he basically gets the words, shoves her out the door. I, I love the line right after that. Do you want me to call the police? And no. tell I'll oh. handle it, Miss Backrack. Oh. Thank oh. you. He practically pushed me out. Well, no, no practically about it. That no, is no exactly practice. what he did. He shoved you out the door, slammed it so he can take care of business. Yes, and uh, she's going probably going to file her immediate resignation. <laughs> I don't think she could take this anymore. Right. Well, apparently she did, because we don't see her anymore. Yeah, And she was never replaced. Nope. That's, that's how newspapers work. People leave, they never replace them. Never replace. Move their desks somewhere out of the way. I think I do the job of like five people now. <laughs> so Jimmy comes in and, and rescues Lois and Mrs. King. And Jimmy has no idea what to do with himself here. He's got this gun with two bullets. And the tension is starting to ramp up, because even Superman is taking forever. Jordan. Well, he has to go look at play. He got to find play. Got to go to sleep well and deep well, and you know he's got to go to other places first because it's always the third place you go that is the oh, right. Oh, absolutely. He has to go search all three of them. Except that I stuck out that first shot of him flying. They hung on that flying shot a long time, longer than usual. They yeah. usually they usually just hang on the flying shot long enough for the do the little the music cue the. But they hung on it a little longer. And so the first here's the first one he goes to. There's a little audio. Did you catch a little audio video problem here? Yeah, I don't Superman that. lands at the hotel, at the cabin, at the one of the, the first tourist place. He's speaking, but his mouth is not moving. Well, I'll have to recheck that. I don't remember that. See, I notice these things with my sound system at home. Ten gets out of sync every once in a while. Right. So I immediately notice when mouths and Oh, okay. Sync up, but that time his mouth wasn't even moving. Interesting. So I don't know what happened there. And this owner doesn't even speak either. He just stands there and shakes his head. See the one staring at Clark, looking up and down at Superman, as if, who the heck are you? I think so. Either this one or the next one. Yeah. So meanwhile, the real babyface Steven shows up. And like I said in the synopsis, he proves his worth by beating the crap out of the other two guys. So that convinces them. And they come up with a neat little neat plan to uh, get Jimmy to waste his two bullets. A plan used in many, many Westerns of the time. Right. I had seen that from Westerns in the 40s and earlier movies with Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. And, and then on the TV shows of Westerns, that's a standard trope. Put it on a rifle or put it on a stick. But for some reason, stick your hat up there and the bad guys are going to shoot at it. <laughs> And this time, the bad guys use the hat trick, and Jimmy shoots at the hat. Right. Twice. Well, then at the window, I think. Well, yeah, the hat and then the window. Yeah. So, so his two bullets are gone. So after this happens, Superman sees gets to another dead end. This time, you can actually see his mouth moving as he talks to the hotel owner. Well, that's good. Maybe the first time he was just using super ventriloquism. He might have been. Because <laughs> after the first one... I look. I paid attention a little more attention. Mouth moving this time. Huh. Yep, it is. Eventually, they go in there, and that's when Superman shows up. And this is one of those scenes where you can clearly see it's the stuntman doing the fighting. Yeah, yeah, it's a fight scene, and punches are being thrown, and guys are flipping over his back, 
and yeah. all kinds of stuff. But yeah, there's one scene where it's obviously the stunt man there. Yeah, one, sh- one, one or two shots. Yeah. I've gotten so used to it that uh, it doesn't bother me anymore. No, it doesn't bother me at all. There's really only one episode in the color season that I loved as a kid. I still like it as an adult, but the stunt man just stands way. It's so obvious. Right. Or the stunt double, I guess. The double is. Right. Because he's not really doing a stunt. There's a scene where he's in the same scene with Superman. There's two Supermen in the same scene. Oh, that the one where he, yeah, he splits, splits himself off? Yeah. That's a just <laughs> such a great episode. Yeah, I, lo- I like that one. I love the shot of the two Supermen taking the uh, the bars off the jail cell. And the right. guard is looking at him like, huh? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great one. That is. So then we're, so I think of that when I see some of the stuntmen sometime. Right. But then at the end of this, when the fight's over and George Reeves just kind of stands in the middle and they all pose for the shot in the right. final couple of scenes, it's just, you know, it's a great scene there. It Smile is. on Jack Larson's face. I just think he and George Reeves must have just gotten along really well. Yeah, they must have. And you could tell from what every interview Jack Larson has done since this show. Yeah. That he had a great, great respect yeah. for George Reeves. And yeah. apparently they became friends during the filming of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great interview with Jack Larson. And I think it's on YouTube. It's a very long interview about maybe a year, year and a half before he died uh, at his home in California. He owned a, a really cool little house, but by a very famous architect. And it's a great interview. It's like 45, 50 minutes. And it goes right. into everything about Jack Larson. He asked, he answered all the questions, the personal questions about his sex life and his love life and partners and, right. and acting jobs and directing and producing and the kind of person he really is. And once I heard that, even my respect for Jack Larson went right. even higher and higher. It's just, just a great individual. And the two of them, I had a, had a genuine friendship for each right. other. So it's nice to hear stuff like that. Yeah, I, I know a lot less about the relationship between George and the two Lois Lanes. Yeah, there wasn't much about that, particularly with he and Phyllis Coates after right. she left the show. And unfortunately, I think there was some bitterness between those two Loises. And even to this day, they don't ever show up. Well, uh, Noel is, is in her 90s now and right. is in uh, pretty weak uh, yeah. health. Uh, she doesn't show up. She used to show up at the Metropolis um Superman Festival every year, which is going on right now as we it record. Is. It's this weekend as we record. One of these years, I'm going to get myself to that one. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get there too. On my bucket, it's on my bucket list. Yeah, it's on mine too. I'd like to get there too. And you really don't hear a lot about Noel's relationship with him either. Uh, no, but th- it's obvious. I mean, th- she right. has a tremendous respect for him, and you hear more from her about him. Right. Uh, he didn't do much, obviously, because he killed himself. So right. that there weren't a lot of post-show interviews with George Reeves. No. So we have to kind of get everything we can uh, from other people that right. were there. And there's less than few of them left. Do you have anything to add on this episode? Uh, no, other than it is, again, probably one of my top ten of the series. It's definitely in my top ten of the black and white first two season episodes. And that's kind of how I break down the, the, the George Reeves episodes, The Adventures of Superman. I know a lot of people will take the first series, the first season, and have that separate and then the other five seasons separate. But I will still lump the second season with the first season because they are both black and white. They both have 26 episodes per season. The remaining four, as we talked about uh, uh, before, 
each have 13 episodes. So there are the same number of color episodes as there are black and white episodes, but double the number of seasons. But every every time I have to write down a top 10 favorites of the black and white episodes, A Night of Terror is in there. And a lot of times it'll actually make it into the top five because Phyllis Coates is just so good in this episode. This and is, in many of them. This so is my favorite Phyllis Coates Lois Lane episode. Mm-hmm. She really shines in this episode. Everything is great. Everything about it is great. She's also really, really good. I forget the name of the episode, but it's one where Clark Kent loses his job and the guy drugs everybody to try to find out who Superman's secret identity is. Yes, yes, that one. And uh, she is really good in that one, too. And she's hypnotized. But there's so many. She's just, it's almost like every time she's on screen, she's she's just dominant. And that's why I love her and George Reeves together. Because both of them, they just, they just eat up the screen. There's they just do. such good chemistry there. But yeah, A Night of Terror, great, great episode. All right. So, Bob, why don't you tell the good listeners where they can find you? Well, you can find me at my home, which is Superman Forever Radio. The Superman Forever Radio Podcast at supermanforever.com. I also do uh, the Giant Superman Podcast with John M. Wilson, and that's at the Giants at giantsuperman.lipson.com. And every once in a while, I slip in over there at the Two True Freaks Network, Two True Freaks Network, and do a music show called Long Play. That's another one of my passions is music. And uh, so I do a music podcast over there occasionally. It's not real regular. It's whenever the spirit moves, as they say. I go and record an episode. So, uh, But to find me, the Superman Forever radio podcast and Bob Fisher on Facebook. And once again, thanks for having me, Mike. I uh, hope I'll be back again for another episode or two down the pike as you do some of these. These are my favorite Superman shows. I definitely will. And you can find me at... Mostly on Facebook, you can find the show at by searching for the Man of Screen podcast. Show is also on Twitter at Man of Screencast, and you can email the show. Feedback is always welcome. Email is manofscreen at gmail.com. and you can find the show on iTunes and give it a review there. So next time, I will be looking at the next two episodes of the Adventures of Superman, the Birthday Letter, and the Mind Machine. So, for Bob Fisher, this is Mike Zumo. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright, their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.